some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father? They said, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he means. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me? And again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is in travail, she has sorrow, because her hour has come. But when she is delivered of the child, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy, that child is born into the world. So you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will be asking nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask anything of the Father, he will give it to you in my name. Hitherto you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last Thursday was opening day for Major League Baseball. It was a wonderful day. All of the stadiums were packed. They showed Whatever stadium they showed you, the crowds were full. It was the earliest opening day for Major League Baseball in history, March the 28th. Usually opening day comes the first week in April. But it was earlier this year, and it was an exciting day. As I was watching the excitement of opening day, I thought about what Yogi Berra said. A home opener is always exciting, no matter if it's at home or on the road. I'm going to let you think about that one for a second. (laughs) No, it was an exciting day, and people were all starting fresh and anew. Everybody's record is the same. They came out that day, and there was 48 home runs that were hit on opening day. It was the Los Angeles Dodgers who hit eight home runs, the most home runs hit by any one team on opening day ever. A new record for Major League Baseball. And I'd like to think it's because they have such an incredible triple-A farm team in the Oklahoma Dodgers and Oklahoma City Dodgers, and their opening day is going to be this Thursday on the 4th of April. And it's a big day. And watching all these home runs being hit, made me think about one of my favorite stories of Nate Colbert. It was 50 years ago this year that Nate was a rookie, playing there in Major League Baseball. He was drafted by the San Diego Padres. And when he came up to baseball, he was hitting home runs that were amazing. They weren't just home runs going over the fence. No, they were towering shots into the upper deck. If it was a small field, they were home runs that were out of the stadium. I mean, this guy was incredible. These long balls. And it was so exciting to watch that even opposing teams 
would all get together and, and cheer, and even for the other guy who's hitting this home runs for Nate. Well, it was in July of that year. The Padres were playing in Atlanta. They were there to play, and, and Nate came to bat the very first time, and he hit a towering home run into the second deck. And the fans just cheered and cheered for him. Three innings later, he came back to the plate. And when he came up to the plate, the fans came to their feet and they began to clap and to cheer. I mean, it really took him aback. I mean, he's playing in Atlanta. He he tries to get his focus, but they just keep clapping. He finally steps out of the batter box to kind of compose himself. And they just keep clapping and clapping. Finally, he walks back to the on-deck circle and picks up the pine tar to kind of put it on his bat, and the people are still on their feet clapping and clapping. He turns to his teammate, Cito Gaston, who was standing on the on-deck circle, and he said, Can you believe this? I mean, can you believe this? And Gaston said, Yes, and you will too if you'll look over your shoulder. And Nate turned and looked, and there on the scoreboard it said, Men land on the moon. It was July 20th, 1969. Apollo 11 had landed on the moon and everyone was standing and cheering. In the midst of all the excitement and the confusion, it's easy to misunderstand what's going on around you. That's what happened to the disciples. In the midst of all the excitement and the confusion, they misunderstood what was going on around them. They'd come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. People lined the streets, waving their palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Hosanna, who comes in the name of the Lord, the Son of David. No, there was excitement and it was confusing. Everybody expected Jesus to come and he was going to seize this moment of momentum, raise an army, overthrow the Roman government, establish the kingdom of Israel. Well, there was a lot of excitement and confusion. And the disciples misunderstood what was going on around them. Jesus would go to the temple. He drove out the money changers, turned over their tables, drove out, drove out those who were selling sacrifices. In the end, he would go back to the temple every day and teach. And you could just sense the anticipation. Thursday night was the Passover meal. In our scripture lesson this morning, we're reading John right about that moment. Now, we know that John is writing his gospel probably 50, 60 years after the event. And so what we know is that John writes what he remembers was said and happened, but he doesn't just tell us what he thinks happened. John always gives us the meaning of what was happening. We've learned that as we've been moving through our Bible study in John this year. He gives us the meaning. And so what he says, he would remember what happened, is that Jesus says, in a short while you will not see me, and then you will see me. And everybody was confused. What is he talking about? What's a short while? As we would know, he's talking about the crucifixion. And he says, in a short while you will not see me, and you will weep. But others will rejoice. But then you will see me. 
and you will know joy. And no one can take that joy from you. Now that statement is really a statement of faith by John. That is born out of his experience. What he has lived all these years. It's the understanding he could tell you, I remember there was so much confusion. We did not understand what was going on around us. But John would live through the crucifixion, the resurrection. He would live through Pentecost. He would wind up living through the persecutions of the church under Nero. He would live through the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. He would look at all of history that had gone and he would be able to say in his own life, nothing can take away the joy. No one can steal your joy from you. That was a statement of faith. It was the belief of the early church. And I think it's the belief we all can have that as you and I go through life, there will be times of great joy and great sadness. There will be times when we do incredibly well and in times when we fail. There will be times that are painful and times that are good. But because we know the risen Christ, no one can take away your joy. This morning, I want to continue on with this sermon series Raising the dead. For it is our belief that we know the risen Christ, and that is why no one can take away our joy. I want us to think about that this morning. Three things that I want to say. First of all, during the season of Lent, remember to take the time to remember who you are. Take the time to remember who you are. I look at John all these years later and looking back, what did we do with Jesus? Where did we do well? Where did we fail? What did he say? What has happened through these years? I believe it's by remembering that John found a sense of peace and strength and affirmation. No one can steal your joy. During the season of Lent, we know it, Historically, as a time of self-reflection, introspection. Christians are supposed to be examining their lives, looking at their lives. And when you and I think about it in those kind of ways, we're usually thinking, okay, if we're looking at our lives, examining our lives, where did we sin? Where did we fail? Where did we make mistakes? All of that we need to think of. But it's also a time to go back and think, and where did I see God move in my life? What were those times when I rose up and I was the person I think God was calling me to be? Where were those times when I reached out in love and I was willing to sacrifice? What were those times I was willing to do the hard thing and forgive? Can you look back at all remembering who you are? Because the truth is, you're not perfect. God didn't expect you to be perfect. What we look back and remember is that we can accept ourselves, be accepted by God, and be able to know the gift of God's grace. That enables you to know joy that no one can take away. Right now I'm reading a fascinating book that I'm really enjoying. It was entitled Second Acts, Life After the White House. And it's about presidents and what do they do 
after they're no longer president? What's the second act? How do they do? How do they adjust back to being a citizen? And you know, it's a really a big issue. And it's fascinating. They follow from Harry Truman all the way through Bill Clinton. How did they do their second act? Some, I can tell you, adjust well, do amazing things. Some don't do so amazing. One of those that I really enjoyed reading was about Harry Truman. Harry Truman, you remember, came to the presidency because Franklin Delano Roosevelt suddenly died. And when FDR died, then Truman became president. And what a tough time it was. We were still struggling with the Great Depression. We were coming towards the end of World War II. It was Truman who had to make decisions. How do I keep the economy going? What do I need to do? He made the decision to drop the atom bomb, to use nuclear weapons. There on Nagasaki, Hiroshima, and Japan, he made tough decisions. And at the end of his term, he had a very low approval rating. But it's fascinating as history has gone by and people have been looking at what he did and how things have borne out, how that approval rating has gone up more and more and more through the years. Well, in his day, you didn't get secret service detail. You didn't get pension. You didn't get anything from the government. You were Mr. President one moment. You were Mr. Citizen the next. Good luck. God bless. And when Harry Truman got out of office, he could decide where he wanted to go live. And he went back to Independence, Missouri, the town where he'd grown up. He'd lived his whole life there until he won a seat in the Senate and went to Washington, D.C. And now that he was coming out of office, he went back home. In those days, it was a town of about 35,000. You could walk down Main Street and, hello, Bob, hello, Janet, hello, Susie. And everybody would say, hello, Mr. President. He would walk the streets and he, he adjusted. In fact, it's amazing when you read all that Harry Truman would do after he got out of office, he had a great second act. And I think there was a reason. There's the story of when he had gotten back home been adjusting, and one day he was going to go to Johnson City on US 40, and he had a friend who was driving, and they're going down the road, and he looks over and he sees a lady on the side of the road who's trying to corral some pigs, her pigs that had gotten out of a, of a pen, and now they were down on the road. And seeing this, he hollers at the driver, stop, stop. And he gets out and he goes over and starts helping this lady corral her pigs to get them back in the pen. Well, of course, on US 40, you got all these people going by and they're seeing what's going on and they recognize the man. By the time he then gets in the car and they get to Johnson City, word had already spread and a reporter was waiting for him, asking him, is it true that you were out there helping corral pigs for a lady to get back in the pen? And Harry Truman said, yes, I'd been a farmer long before I was president. I tried never to forget who I was and where I'd come from, and where I was going back to. There is a reason that he was able to do well, because I never wanted to forget who I was, where I'd come from, and where I was going back to. Lent is a time to reflect on your life. Remember who you are. Not something to be afraid of, God didn't ask you to be perfect. You have to embrace and accept all of you, your whole self, and give thanks. 
You know, today we are doing that with our celebration in Edmond. You know, we have many of our members from downtown who are up in Edmond today, and that's wonderful. People who are all celebrating what's happened in the last five years. Five years ago, we sent people from this family of faith to Edmond saying, could you help start a new family of faith, a satellite, where one church, multiple campuses, and people went, and they sacrificed, and they gave. And now there is a group of people who come together who love one another. They have celebrated life's joys together. They have cried together at pain. They have grown in their faith. People have come to Christ. They are involved in mission. We have built a beautiful building. It's important to stop and remember who we are. In just a few weeks, we're going to be celebrating our 130th anniversary that took place on April the 28th, 1889, first Sunday after the land run, the founding of St. Luke's, this family of faith that continues to grow and will always keep growing. You need to stop and remember who you are. For it is in remembering, in the midst of God's grace, in the presence of the risen Christ, you find you can accept yourself. You accept life. And you know joy that no one can take away. And secondly, remember the incredible joy that comes from blessing life. No one can take that joy away. No matter what happens, no one can take it away. I love it when John comes to this passage and he comes to the end and says, Whatever you ask in my name, you will receive. Ask in my name. That's the passage where we get this tradition of saying a prayer and we come to the end and we say, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, for some people, this passage is kind of the magic. It's the secret words. The words that if you know to pray at the end of the prayer, you're going to get God to do what you ask. In Jesus' name we pray. I don't think that's what this means at all. Now, I think Jesus told us to pray in His name. What that means is, are you going to pray the prayer that Jesus would pray? To pray in His name is to pray like Him. Are you offering a prayer that Jesus would pray? Are you offering a prayer where you say, not my will, but thy will be done? A prayer where you're saying, Oh God, could you use me the way that I know you call me to be used, to do it under the least of these? When you pray as Jesus would pray, John's looking at this and saying, on the night of the Last Supper, when we were confused and we didn't understand what was going on, he washed our feet and then he told us to wash one another's feet. For all these years, John had now given his life to blessing life. He could look back and he knew the joy that comes from letting God use you in blessing life. You know, a couple weeks ago, I was telling you about Jacqueline Novogratz. What a fascinating story. Very quickly, I I encapsulate the story that I told you a couple weeks ago of how she grew up in a good Catholic home there in New York. She went to Catholic school. She loved Sister Mary. And told Sister Mary, I want to be a nun. And Sister Mary said, well, I don't know what you'll be when you grow up. But I can tell you, Jackie, to whom much is given, much will be required. And Jacqueline Novogratz grew up and she felt God was speaking to her. God could use her 
to do great things. She decided to forego her her career in international banking. She had the title. She was making big money. But she wanted to go to East Africa, and she wanted to wind up going to India to try to make microloans. It was a whole new idea in her day. And I told you how she went out there to, uh, to Rwanda and she began trying to make these loans to meet people. And in the end, no one was responding. Who cared about a young, pretty white girl in her 20s trying to show up and tell other people what to do? And she just wasn't making any headway and was about to quit when one morning she went for a run and she noticed a boy coming the other way wearing a sweater, a blue sweater that looked like her favorite blue sweater as a kid growing up. And when she came up to the kid, she looked in the back of the tag, and there was her name, Jacqueline Novogratz. She had donated the sweater to Goodwill 11 years ago in New York, and here was a boy wearing it in Rwanda, and they came face to face. And she took that as a sign, God does want her to be there. Do not quit. So the rest of the story, she didn't quit. She did stay, and right after that, She met a lady who befriended her, who said, I think I can help you get a foothold. And there was 20 ladies there in Kilgali who were running a small kind of bakery and they needed help. And so Jacqueline went to them and she found that they had this little place. They were making these little beignets, if you will, and they went out and they'd sell them on the streets. And they were making a little bit of money, about 50 cents a day. It was enough to keep a roof over their head and some food on the table But they were being supported by a church, and if the church withdrew its support, it would all collapse. They were going in the red every single month. And so Jacqueline came to them, and and Jacqueline said, have you tried to expand your customer base? No. Come on. She went to the U.S. Embassy, the French Embassy. She went to all the different embassies and said, can these ladies come and sell to your people during break time? Sure. They went back to the baker and these ladies were thrilled. It's like, holy cow, we just expanded our our market, our our whole base. And Jacqueline said, okay, let's work on our sales. What do you do for sales? We don't do anything. We stand there with our basket. Well, I want you to look people in the eye and I want you to have them come down. I have something sweet that you would like. I have something tasty you would enjoy. Look them in the eye. Tell them you have something. And they said, we can't do that. That's impolite. And Jackie knew it's not impolite. It's about self-esteem. She said, I want you to look me in the eye. And now give me your sales pitch. I have something you would like, something sweet you would enjoy. And these women begin to practice. They went back. Sales went through the roof. They were celebrating. Until there was a supervisor who called Jackie and said, could I speak to you about a delicate matter? And Jackie went back to meet with the supervisor and she said, we're discovering that some of the people who are buying the goods, well, they're going to the bathroom more frequently. And Jackie came back to talk to the ladies and said, okay, how often are we changing the oil which we're cooking these beignets? And they said, you told us to keep the cost down. We don't ever change it. We just add a little more each day. And she said, okay, we need to take care of quality control here. There's some things we're going to have to do. 
And so they got that under control. How do we improve this? And then she said, why don't we take the little place we have and turn it into a cafe, a bakery? We could paint it, get you some tables. We could expand. Then you could be serving all day long, not just to people on break. She said, I will give you the loan to be able to fix this place up. And so she did. And they all worked together and they painted it. And they made this beautiful little cafe. And I want to read you what Jackie said. Within eight months, the women were earning $2 a day, four times more than when we started, and much more than most earned in Kilgali. And in some weeks, when profits were good, they earned more than $3. Few people earned that kind of money in Rwanda, certainly not women. For the first time, their incomes allowed them to decide when to say yes and when to say no. Money is freedom and confidence and choice, and choice is dignity. The solidarity of the bakery also gave them a sense of belonging that made them even stronger. I read these words and I thought it was one person spending eight months teaching people how to do the things they could do. A small investment alone changing their world forever. Whenever you see Jacqueline Novogratz speak, she gives many TED Talks, you'll see a lady of incredible joy because no one can take away the joy that comes from blessing life. But as I thought about her, I also thought there isn't a one of us who can't be blessing life where we are in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. It doesn't take money to be kind. To look around and be aware and to choose to do something, to be helpful wherever you are in your world. I'm telling you, there's a joy that comes from letting God use you. Knowing you're in the place where God chooses for you to be. The power of the Holy Spirit to help you to bless life. There's no one who can take that joy away from you. And so third... I think when John winds up saying, for John, the secret is, when you see me, when you see me again, it's the risen Christ, then you will know joy. Then you will know joy. How do you come to know a joy the world can't take away? It's about knowing the presence of the risen Christ in your life. When you know that presence, when you've taken the time to remember who you are, reflecting on all of who you are and how you are called to bless life, when you look at how God is working in your life, you're going to feel incredibly grateful for the gift of Almighty God's grace, the gift of His presence. And we know that grateful people are joyful people. You and I have lived through the year of gratitude. We've done it twice here you know that when we live in gratitude, it does something to create that joy the world can't take away. I wonder if this Lent, you and I would look at our lives and remember who we are, but if we'd also try to think about someone who has blessed our life, someone who has opened a door for us, done something for us, and then for us to go out of our way to express our gratitude. 
how would that help to put you in the right spirit to experience Easter? You know, right now is such a great time, and if you're a person who likes sports, you know I love sports. But what a great time it is. The opening of Major League Baseball here this week, and right now, of course, we got going on March Madness, and we're down, going to be down to the Final Four. Um, we have the Masters Golf Tournament coming up, and in four weeks we have the NFL Draft. I mean, what a great time of year this is if you love sports. And I, I've been watching all these different mock drafts and uh, going on in football, and, and I'm kind of curious where Kyler Murray is going to wind up going and what's going to wind up happening. But it got me to thinking about one of my all-time favorite football players, and that's Emmett Smith. I, I've always been a Dallas Cowboy fan. I grew up in Houston, cheered for the Oilers, but I always cheered for Tom Landry and the Dallas Cowboys. I just always have. And I, I remember when Emmett Smith came along in the early, uh, drafted 1990, but you had Michael Irvin and you had Troy Aikman. And, oh, man, those were the, the golden years for Dallas. And I, I loved those times. But Emmett Smith, what a fascinating story. You know, he grew up in Pensacola, Florida. Didn't grow up a person of means, but grew up in Pensacola, Florida, and and... He went to a high school, Escambia High School. And Escambia, the last three years, their football team had won three games. One game a year, basically, for three years. They were not very good. But the year that Emmett came to go to high school there, they got a new coach. And this new coach got the kids together and said, All right, what are your dreams for this team? What are your dreams for football? Get a three-by-five card. I want you to write them down. He said, A dream is just a dream. But when you write it down, it becomes a goal. And goals can change your life. I want you to paste it underneath the mirror in your locker so that every day when you open your locker, you will look at yourself in the mirror and then I want you to read your goals. Change your dreams into goals. Well, there was a whole new coaching philosophy and new ideas. And you had Emmett Smith. And suddenly this team that had won three games in the last three years, they won two state championships consecutively. They became an incredible powerhouse. Emmett Smith would go on to rush for second highest yards total of any high school kid in America. His senior year, he was chosen as Gatorade High School Player of the Year and given two tickets to the Super Bowl being held in Pasadena, California. He took with him his high school buddy, Johnny Nix, and they went to the game and And as he's watching the game, Emmett told him, he said, I'm going to play in the Super Bowl one day. Little did he know, six years later, he'd be playing in the Super Bowl in Pasadena, California with the Dallas Cowboys. Graduated high school. He chose the University of Florida. He went there and rewrote their record books. After three years, he chose to go pro. 1990, drafted by the Cowboys. 1990, his rookie year, he won. Rookie of the year for the NFL. 1991, he would win the rushing title for the NFL. 1992, he would win the rushing title for the second year in a row. Dallas would go to the Super Bowl and win, and he would be the MVP of the Super Bowl. Now you look at this kid, this young kid in his early 20s, all this success, all this glory, all this money. You know how people treat professional athletes. Can you imagine what's going on for Emmett? And so he came to the 93-94 season. I was watching a show about him, and it was fascinating. 
Emmett Smith to this day, every year when the year starts, he dreams his dreams and then writes them down. Because he knows they're just dreams until you write them down. And to this day, he still does that. And he was doing it in 1993, 1994 season as they got ready to begin again. And Dallas would go to the Super Bowl again and win again. But they had a copy of what he had written down. They had the paper. And it was interesting. Number four goal? Well, the number four goal was to win the rushing title again, which he did. And number three title uh, goal? Well, that was to rush 125 yards a game average, which he did. Number two goal? Well, the number two goal was stay healthy. Number one goal, keep Jesus Christ number one in my life. You're on the middle of this incredible run with the world throwing themselves at your feet. My number one goal, keep Jesus Christ number one in my life. It wasn't because somehow Jesus Christ was helping him to win the rushing title or Super Bowls. No, it's how do you handle success and help you remember who you are and stay grounded. To remember what it means to say the world isn't just all about me and to bless life. He's been an amazing man who has always been reaching out to try to bless the lives of others. But on top of all of that, he's always been someone who's been so grateful. Because he has stayed grounded in Christ, he has been so grateful for all the other people who have been blessing him. When it came to his retirement speech after 15 years, he's the all-time leading rusher in the NFL. 18,355 yards. All-time leading rusher. He comes to his retirement and he gives his retirement speech. The first 10 minutes, he thanks 172 people. 172 people who he thought he needed to thank. I went and watched his induction into the a football Hall of Fame. And when he stood up, the first thing he did was thank his coach and offensive coordinator from his high school, calling them out by name. You changed my life so that I wouldn't just have dreams. I would have goals. He called out Jerry Jones. He called out Jimmy Johnson. He called out Troy Aikman and Michael Irvin. But then he wanted to call out um, Daryl Johnston. Now, unless you're a real football fan, you may not know the name, Daryl Johnston. Daryl Johnston was the fullback playing for the Cowboys in those days. And the job of the fullback, well, you didn't run the ball a lot. You didn't catch a whole lot of passes. Your job was to run up there, knock over the linebacker, open a hole so the running back could run through. And at his his induction to the Hall of Fame, he's calling names, and he called out Daryl Johnston and said, Would you stand? And he just began to weep. Emmett just stood there and he was just weeping. And he said, you sacrificed so much. Without Daryl Johnson, there is no Emmett Smith. You opened the holes so that I could run through. And I thought, do you remember the people who opened the holes that you could run through? Do you remember the people who opened the doors so that you could go through? Do you live in a spirit of gratitude? 
Or is it just all about me? Look at me and what I've done. For John, what an amazing life. But he knew the secret. When you see me, you will know joy. And no one can take that joy from you. To know the presence of the risen Christ. To remember who you are. To be out and to serve. To live in gratitude. Yeah, you're going to know the risen Christ and you will know joy. It's the risen Christ that raises us from the dead. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.